isn't sleep medication doesn't necessarily promote deep sleep cycles, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Sleep medication doesn't keep that beautiful architecture of the cycle that we talked about. So it's not really promoting naturalistic sleep. And also in studies that they have tracked people with insomnia with sleep problems, a year later, some group had behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, and some people had uh, drugs to help them sleep. One year later, it's the people that received the behavioral therapy that were actually doing better in terms of insomnia relative to the people that had the drug. Mm. So right now, the first line of treatment for sleep problems is actually uh, behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which really emphasizes a lot of what we talked about in terms of sleep hygiene, not staying in bed for too long if you're awake in the middle of the night, really keeping sort of a schedule and a routine around sleep, trying to stick to the same sleep onset and sleep offset time, even though it's a weekend or a weekday. So really trying to rethink that clock with that sleep need that we talked about and having those in a constant routine. Hi there, welcome to Shift to Shubra. I'm your host, Shubra Benetti. I am a sleep consultant for adults and children. I'm also a baby science program instructor and an Akashic Light Healing practitioner. And today we are having the second installment of my conversation with Dr. Etty Ben-Simon, a postdoctoral fellow, sleep researcher, neuroscientist at the Walker's Lab for Human Sleep Science based in University of California, Berkeley. So Dr. Simon and I had a wonderful long conversation about sleep and it had to be that long because there was so much obviously to cover because sleep does that much in our body. So today we wanted to split this conversation into two episodes so that you, you know, all the information is covered and it's still palatable in terms of its timing. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, which is the rest of the conversation with Dr. Etty Ben Simon. And please, you know, do subscribe to our channel for more conversations like this with other experts in the wellness field. Do comment, subscribe, share. And of course, if you have any other requests for content, please write into us. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. Very quickly, in just so that people understand, because the whole like it's eight hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep. Does everyone really need eight hours or I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but you know, for, for, from, from the source, different chronotypes, I understand have sort of different needs of the number of hours of sleep, right? But, so actually, I think there are two dimensions that determine our sleep. One of them is how much sleep we need, which can vary between individuals, uh, between usually seven to nine in healthy older adult in healthy adults, but that's independent of when you would like that sleep to occur. Yeah. So basically we can have all types of flavors. We can have an evening person that only needs seven hours of sleep. Right. And we can have a morning person that also only needs seven hours of sleep, but that window would just happen earlier. Mm. And then we can also have an evening person that's a long sleeper. And so they would start at midnight and stop at 10. And then we can have, again, a morning person that's a long sleeper that would start at 10, but wake up only at six or seven. Right. So you can have any one of those combinations. And in fact, they are also determined by different genes. 
Mm. So how much sleep we need versus what chronotype we are is two different routes. And it's really interesting to also bring, uh, reiterate that there are actually two factors that affect our sleep. One of them has to do with our internal clock. Yep. And that also determines our chronotype. And the other one has to do with how much time we've been awake. So just feeling sleepy. Mm. And these two really, they have developed, evolved into two different sort of uh, research themes in, in neuroscience. One of them is circadian rhythm research and the other one is sort of science of sleep. But they are very much interlinked. For instance, let's say I sleep deprived an individual for 24 hours, so no sleep at all. Okay. And then they're awake, they have one day of activity, no sleep at all. And then the second day of activity, I'm tracking how tired they are. And that would fluctuate throughout the day based on time of day. Mm -hmm. So they would be really miserable and tired at 6 a.m., slightly less at 7, slightly less at 8, suddenly feel almost okay at around 9, 10. Again, at noon, they would drop again. They would feel very, very tired. And it would go up again towards 5 or 6 p.m. and then sliding down mm. so even if you hold sleep constant so you have no sleep you still see that the circadian aspect our internal clock has sort of wax and waning sort of alertness or energy that it can provide us yeah so are at the mercy in terms of how energetic we feel of both of these processes how long we've been awake but also what time of day it is and one of the problems that are also related, for instance, for the question of trying to catch up on sleep. Yes. So when you try to catch up on sleep, you're actually only taking into account one factor, which is how long I've been awake. You know, I've accumulated sleep loss. I'm going to try and make it up. Yeah. But you don't take into account the fact that that means you're going to try and drive sleep into a window of circadian activity that doesn't match sleep okay so the clock doesn't really care too much how long you've been awake it's going to mm -hmm. try and wake you up at 8 a.m if that's the time you're used to waking up right so even though you have been sleep deprived now because you were in a study come 8 a.m all those systems would just wake up as normal you would suddenly find, find it harder to fall asleep suddenly your sleep would be shallower and you will try maybe to make up for two or extra three hours, but that's it. At some point, you would wake up. Yeah. So because of that interaction, it's actually hard to sleep more than 10 or 11 hours in a stretch because at some point, the clock kicks in and wakes you up, even though you're really tired. Right. So, so when we sleep deprived and when we're chronically sleep deprived, let's say during the week and we try to make up for the weekend, Yes. We not only not get all the sleep we need because we can never complete, fully compensate for those eight hours, we're also sort of messing up the synchronization between being asleep and being sort of at the trough or circadian during the night and being awake and active when the clock tells us to during the day. All of those factors are really well synchronized when we sleep during the night and awake during the day and they start messing each other up mm. and coming sort of off sync 
when we play around with our sleep schedule, when we try to catch up over the weekend, all of those things start teasing apart these two sort of very big uh, factors that affect sleep. So then if people keep saying that, oh, I only sleep four hours and I'm fine and I'm ready to go, so I don't need that much sleep. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not true. <laughs> Do they exist? Is there like a tiny, you know, 1% of the population of the world that actually only can thrive on four hours of sleep? Or are these people just deluding themselves? So usually when people say that to me, I ask them how many cups of coffee they have. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not surprised to hear that it's usually three or more. So they rely on chemicals to stay awake, even though they are a very short sleepers. There is a mutant gene that helps people feel satisfied and refreshed with six hours, uh, but that is very, very, it affects less than uh, 1% of the population. Mm. But typically from all the studies and when you take people into, and you try to quantify, you know, what does it mean to be alert? So you try to give them different tasks, how fast they can press a button, whether they can pay attention, whether they can learn sets of words, these kind of things. So when you do that, you see that people are at their optimum when they get seven to nine hours of sleep. Mm. And anything less, and especially anything less that chronically maintains, so keeping them on six or five hours for, for a week or two, you start seeing everything deteriorated relative to that optimal function. Yeah, okay. So then I have a number of clients that then come up to this thing of going, oh, I wake up in the middle of the night, so then I get on my phone, and I get tired and that's the only way I can fall asleep. And I'm like, oh, you're just exhausting your brain. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of people, obviously, we're in this day and age where the smartphone is right in the palm of your hand. You're sitting and you're lying in bed and it's right over here and you're doing all of this. Yeah. And of course, before I became a sleep consultant, I was doing the exact same, right? You know, and now I don't. But when we have these blue light blocking screens and everything... I'm, I beg to think that it's not actually blocking that much light. Like if your eyes see it, clearly it's still triggering the, the circadian rhythm or the su suprachiasmatic nucleus. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> nucleus. Still, it's still tricking it somewhere. And so is that, I mean, people are going to be like, but that's how I feel tired and that's how I can fall asleep. That cannot be the right way. I don't think so, right? Like, and you're not necessarily going, because then they're also skipping kind of stage one a little bit and just going, you know, into into stuff as well. So yeah. Is is that am I, I am think, I hypothesizing rightly here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think that actually, if there is a room in the house that should not have technology, it's the bedroom. Yeah. I think that sleep is one of those things that are actually much better when we go back to our origins so you know dark slightly colder than the day no artificial lights no excessive toys to play with and one of the things i mean people really focus on the light issue which i think is important and it also sends very confusing signals of course to to the circadian rhythm which is expecting dark at this time but Another aspect is how stressful it is and how engaging it is. I think mm. the phones, they were built to keep us engaged. So there's yeah. always something interesting, especially with social media. And 
even though it it may be perfectly calming to read about other people at some point or another you would read a comment that would kind of spike your blood pressure get you a bit agitated get you thinking about something that you didn't think about before it's something that is exactly the opposite disconnecting it's something mm. that keeps you engaged and keeps your arousal high keeps your emotion involved so having that thing in the bedroom is really counterproductive to initiation of sleep Mm. I would suggest that, you know, if you want some time alone with your phone before bed, have it in another room, leave it there and go back to bed. Mm. And, and just like you do a lot with babies, our ability to help ourselves fall asleep is really important. Yeah. If we find that we rely on other things, and especially things that are so arousing like phones, then we're setting ourselves up for having our sleep fragmented. Mm. because we're able to calm ourselves down without something that would take at least a half an hour to relax from and go back to sleep. Mm. So I think that really keeping the bedroom clear of technology and having sort of a bedtime routine that helps the body calm down. And also, you know, we think about it a lot with babies, how we need to time their feeding and we time their bed and then we time their sort of activity and stuff like that. And we see that circadian, but we're just as circadian of yeah. a creature when we do something at 9 or 10 p.m. each night to prepare ourselves for sleep, then that's something really helps in train also our circadian rhythm to come down and prepare uh, prepare the body for sleep. Mm. So a lot of these routines of, you know, closing the lights at the house, doing something relaxing before you go to bed can be really helpful. Mm. And I think it may, you know, like any addiction, and I think phones are an addiction, it may take a while to, you know, to feel that this is working. But in the long run, I think it's definitely beneficial to learn to fall asleep without these external aids and really let, you know, let our brain rest and our body rest like, like they should. Mm. So in terms of, let's just talk about things that stimulate then the brain in terms of like affecting sleep. Why is darkness then so important when people say, like, oh, I just look at my phone and then I'll fall asleep and stuff. I know that the light is obviously triggering something else. Is it possibly that also melatonin only responds better with darkness as well? Yeah, absolutely. So melatonin is released at the first signs of darkness. Mm. So the suprachiasmatic nucleus that you mentioned is very sensitive to light and that's the master clock of the brain. So we can really adjust the clock by giving a pulse of light at certain hours of the day. So for instance, they do these studies, mice, you keep the mice in total darkness, and then you give them a pulse of light at a certain time of day. And whenever you give that light, then the brain would say, oh, okay, so now I know what time it is. Mm -hmm. And everything starts being shifted towards that pulse of light. So mice are nocturnal. So for them, a pulse of light is a sign to go to sleep. Right. And then a few hours later, they would wake up. So light has a tremendous effect on our clock. Mm. And having light in the bedroom at the wrong time can really throw off the release of melatonin because melatonin 
is only released when it's dark and it's actually blocked by the blue light. That's why we have those filters. Mm. When we have blue light washing our eyes, that is sort of a signal to the brain that it's daytime, we should stop melatonin, we should wake up. Mm. So it's definitely not something that you want to do when you're trying to fall asleep. Mm. So in terms of blue light blocking glasses that a lot of parents now are trying to buy for their children, do they actually work? And should that be the go-to? I think I'm going actually... to say no. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to hear what you say. <laughs> I think that instead of trying to sort of cheat the light component, it's just better to find non-technological ways, just removing technology from the bedroom. Because yeah. as I mentioned, it's not just the ability to block the blue light. I mean, if you have to, then you should do it because it would block your melatonin release and sort of delay your sleep onset. Mm. But in general, anything that's connected to the internet, anything that's engaging, even if it's just a game, it's not something that you want to do exactly when you're supposed to come down yeah. and we're supposed to the world in order to fall asleep. So I think that you know, every 10 minutes holding that phone is another 15 minutes that the body has to go back down to a lower arousal level that that machine that the technology has caused. Mm. So I think in terms of sleep hygiene and if parents really want uh, their kids to get the sufficient sleep that they need, so create that routine around sleep where, you know, technology comes before and once you go into bed, you just go and you sleep in your bed. Mm. And I've also heard stories about kids that wake up and sort of text each other half asleep because, you know, the phone is nearby and they just had a thought. And this is really detrimental for sleep because like I told you before, the continuity of sleep is also something very important. And if, you, if your sleep is fragmented by this texting, every time you wake up, your brain would start the whole cycle again. So go yeah. into stage one, two, three. So whatever stage you were in, if you have this 10 or 15 minutes time of being awake, you stopped all of that cycle and you have to start it over again. Okay. And the more of these fragmentations that you have, the less you're actually able to complete the cycles that you need for that night. Yeah. Get all the benefits. Okay. And so then for adults who also have this fragmented cycles and then they get up and again, not everyone, but of course some of them, you know, get up, they'll use the washroom because obviously now that their body's awake, they almost like habitually now have just had to go use the washroom, which, you know, they turn on some light and they go use the washroom. And sometimes they may just check their phone to make sure that they haven't missed some email that has to come the next morning or something. I'm going to say that's probably not the greatest idea to do that kind of stuff. But what can... It, okay, so of course, there are people going to have this issue, right? They wake up in the middle of the night and then what should they be doing, really, if they are doing that to induce better sleep yeah. going forward? If you wake up and you find it hard to fall back asleep after 10 or 15 minutes, then the advice is to go to a different room, to leave the bedroom. Uh, to go to lightly lit room, so not bright light, but not too dark, so you can see, and just do something very relaxing, either write in a journal or read a book. Again, something that you can easily let go of once you feel tired. And when you feel tired, then you go back to sleep. And 
the reason you want to do that is because if you tend to suffer from fragmented sleep, Mm. then the mere struggle of trying to fall asleep starts forming an idea in your head that the bed is a war zone. Yeah. So you get into bed and you're immediately stressed because, oh my God, now I need to fall asleep. I don't know if I can fall asleep. And you start sort of being anxious about falling asleep. Mm. And the way you break that cycle is that you leave bed the minute that you know you feel that struggle starting to occur so it's been 10-15 minutes it doesn't work just leave the bed Hmm. and then you are telling the brain that you're not telling the brain that the bed is a place of battle because you're not battling anything you just let yourself come down in another room and you go back when you're tired and that way the association of bed and sleep can stay intact Mm. So you don't get into bed and you're immediately anxious. Mm. So this is a protocol that, you know, if you tend to suffer multiple sort of bad nights of sleep that you can try and do. Mm. And over time, that would help to initiate sleep faster once you've woken up and mm. Hopefully, what need to do those timeouts. There's also the thing about how do people then know how much sleep they actually need? Like, how would they, if they don't oh, I love know this question. their chronotype, yeah, then can they do their own sleep study in that sense? I really, I encourage everyone to experiment with their sleep. So I like to call it the sleep reset protocol. And actually, the pandemic is a really good time yes. to try this if you know, if you're healthy and you can do it and you can be flexible with your schedule. So try to take a few days where you don't have to wake up at a certain time. So don't use an alarm clock. Go to sleep as earliest as you can. I mean, when you feel sleepy, so don't try to push it to a certain hour, just when you feel sleepy and just wake up naturally. And when people do that, after, let's say, you know, years of social jet lag, the first few days, they might just be sleeping longer because they need it. And we actually do see that the pandemic has increased sleep duration by 45 minutes to an hour. So people, because they can, are actually getting more of the sleep that they need, which is actually one of the good things that happened. So, but after those few days, you would settle into your sort of Goldilocks zone. How much sleep you need and when do you need it? Mm. And I think the most, the hardest part of this sort of think thought game is to actually, the hardest part is to stick to a routine once you know it. Yeah. So, you know, you might realize that, oh, if I go to sleep at 10 and wake up at 6, I feel awesome. And some people would say, oh, my God, midnight to 9 is just amazing and I'm so refreshed. But then, you know, how do you keep that happening? How do you not let a movie late late at night or something in the morning that you feel like you want to do start sort of changing and shifting that? Mm-hmm. And especially... Speaking as an evening person, for evening people, it's really hard to push their sleep a bit because most of their sleep occurs uh, later at night anyway. So it's not, it's easier for them to just wait another hour, another half an hour. But then once you do that, again, you're interfering with luck we discussed because now your window of sleep has shifted such that 
the body already starts waking up before you finish your yeah. your entire sleep duration. Yeah. So then it starts messing up with that synchronization. You feel a bit more groggy. You would try to sleep maybe longer or a different time the next night, and everything kind of is thrown out. But if you're once you find that Goldilocks zone, I think if you can kind of stick to it as much as you can, it's so beneficial because suddenly sleep is continuous and very restful. You kind of know your limits in terms of when you would wake up and you're already, you, know, you wake up refreshed, when, you know, it's time to call it a day and, and stop playing around with your phone or watching TV. And one of the, another tip that I like to give is if you're watching TV, take sort of like a little break around, I don't know, when you start feeling tired and close your eyes. If you feel like you can fall asleep, mm. just stop whatever you're doing and go to the bedroom. Because once, I mean, it's easy to fool ourselves into, you know, we can, that's part of the flexibility of, of, of humans. We can try to push sleep voluntarily. That's, that's how we do sleep deprivation studies. But the fact that we can do it doesn't mean we should. Yeah. And, and you know, over time, when you sort of play around with your sleep a lot, you tend to pay the price by, especially as you grow older, mm. where sleep becomes harder to maintain during the night. And people can suffer from, you know, that lack of synchronization that we talked about. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, just going straight into it then. So what are possibly the implications that can happen or, you know, that is related to sleep deprivation over the long haul, whether it's emotional, mental or, or physical? Yeah. So just like we see all the benefits of sleep for the brain and the body, so the mirror of that is all the impairments that we see when we don't get enough sleep or when uh, we don't get any sleep at all. We see effects on cognition. So people have a hard time paying attention. They have a hard time learning new facts. They, they hardly can learn new facts. We see effects on mood. People's mood is deteriorated very fast after sort of 4 or 5 a.m. They feel more anxious, jittery, depressed. We see effects also in motivation. People are not motivated, of course, to do anything but sleep. We have also done some studies on social interaction. It's really interesting, sort of a new field showing that people, when they are really tired, when they haven't slept enough, are not as interested in social interaction. They prefer to be alone. We also found that when you interact with someone who's sleep deprived, then people find them less interesting socially. So we can also detect cues of that, of that sleepiness in others. And if you think about it over time, not being interested in others and others not interested in you can really lead to, to isolation. Uh, loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And social isolation. So we see these effects as well. And speaking of physical, we see changes in the immune system. We see slight increases in factors that promote inflammation. We see the heart rate changing in a way that it's less flexible. So mm. typically when we're awake, our heart sorry, can change rates depending on the situation. We call that heart rate variability. And we see that the variability of the heart is impaired when we don't get enough sleep, similar with the blood pressure as well. So 
really a mirror of a lot of the benefits we get when we go to sleep. We see the impairments when we don't get enough or we don't get at all. Mm. And I think I read in Dr. Dement's book, William Dement's book, about an experiment that they were doing on like when a person was quite sleep deprived and they were doing flashes and they were supposed to click if they see the flash. And despite the person's eye being open, there was a flash and they didn't click. And yeah. Everyone in the lab obviously saw the flash and they, were, they they checked in with the study client, I'm just going to say patient, and they were like, did you see the flash? And he was like, no. <laughs> and it's almost like basically his eyes were open, but his brain has basically yeah. gone to sleep. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of accidents when I was reading also like Body Rhythms by Lynn Lamberg. She was talking about how a lot of and very unfortunately a lot of big accidents in the world you know no definitive cause but it's very possible that they were caused because someone was not slept enough and therefore their brain is just that one second slower and that only takes a second for the brain to switch off or not or have a lag and then an accident can happen yeah it's estimated that about 30 percent of car accidents is actually caused by drowsy driving and it's absolutely right. The brain needs sleep so much that even if we try to stay awake, sometimes parts of the brain would just go offline and stop working even though we're awake. So one of the tasks that we usually do to assess you know, how tired someone is, is exactly that sort of flashing image or flashing shape on the screen. And we, only, we ask the participant, when you see that shape, just press a button. And when people are sleep deprived, they sort of freeze, they just doze off, even though they're still awake or technically awake, and they just don't press the button or they press it two seconds later Mm. when a typical response is around 300 milliseconds. Mm. So it takes them ages to realize and process, oh my God, there was a shape I need to press. But sometimes they just freeze, they just look at it and they don't do anything. And it really does take only a second or two to be involved in a car accident because your reaction time is so slow that by the time you realize you're in the wrong direction, it it might be too late. So so it's very tricky to think that, you know, we can somehow cheat on our need for sleep or step away from it. It is very much part of who we are. And I think it is, I mean, we are what we are thanks to it. So it's really hard to turn our back to sleep. And I think it's not only the fault, let's say, of individuals who sort of want to try and cram in more into the day. I think it's also the fault of a lot of our attitude in society generally towards sleep. So like I mentioned before, when you look from the outside at someone sleeping, it looks like they're doing nothing, but there's actually so much happening in the brain and the body that is so essential for life and for optimal health. So the idea that sleep is sort of a waste of time, I think, Mm. happened because we only discovered all of those beautiful things that are happening during sleep about 50 or 60 years ago when we discovered REM sleep. Yeah. There's a funny story about the discovery of REM sleep. So we had a machine mm. that records electrical brain activity since 1930. Right. 
And then for some reason, 23 years went by until we discovered the REM sleep. And I was wondering at some point, why did it take them so long to figure out that the brain is shifting states? And the reason is that when you go into sleep, so you start with stage one, two, deep sleep, and then only REM. Yeah. So that's the first REM actually happens about an hour, an hour 20 after you fall asleep. Mm. And at the time, paper was really expensive. Yeah. So they were recording for about an hour and they said, okay, nothing interesting is switch happening anymore. And they switch it off. <laughs> so only 23 years later, someone said, wait, let's try and see what happens. Let's just let it later. run and see if there's any changes. <laughs> yeah. And they were actually one of the grad students that was doing the study. He saw that babies have their eyes move around sometimes when they fall asleep underneath their eyelids. And he was, he wanted to see, you know, what, what happens when you get to that stage. And that 1953 is the first time someone recorded a sleeping brain for the entire night. So because it's such a young field, I feel we haven't communicated enough the wealth of benefits that we get from sleep and how integral sleep is to life, basically, because we see sleep in every living creature we've studied to date. So Mm. it's not something that is some sort of anomaly or a weakness of the humankind. It's really an integral part of being alive. Mm. And it's also sort of part of my hope for my work in the future to try and communicate that to the public as much as I can. Yeah, I I really hope that a lot more of this uh, starts getting there because, I mean, this is a question that I probably, I'll ask anyway, just in case, but do you think sleep deprivation can start from babies, from toddlers? And if, if it's not addressed then, then it just sort of, continues or is it something that only really starts at like teenagers because I think that's the misconception a lot of people have and I'm actually going to be speaking to hopefully University of Massachusetts has a pediatric sleep research lab there and I'm going to be obviously a lot more children-based ones but if you have any 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 research already on this but does it can it start formulating from babies or from toddlerhood this sort of sleep deprivation and things? Well, it's, it's different. It would be a different type of sleep deprivation because now we're talking about usually because children have an environment that is promoting sleep. So parents do want their children to sleep and they try to accommodate uh, everything that the child needs at that point for sleeping. So if there are issues with sleep, they are typically not driven by sort of constraints from society. They're more driven by maybe problems with breathing, problems with nightmares that can only also emerge from deep sleep stages, uh, night walking that we talked about and, and things like that. So these are, if treated, sleep can be restored and then you can avoid cases of sleep deprivation. With teenagers and adults, it's a bit harder because in order for the environment to be very sort of promoting and encouraging of sleep, many factors have to change, mm. like work and school and social life. So there are a lot of external factors that are actually at play. And even if the teenager would like to sleep, then she's having trouble with other sort of forces that are more mm. powerful than her. 
Mm. Yeah, in toddlers, a lot of the time, the intention of the environment is to allow them to sleep because everybody knows how hard it is to deal with a child that sleeps their nap. And so it's quite obvious, but it's funny to me that we need that sleep just as much when we are older too. And when we are developing our brains in adolescence and when we go to college and we need to learn new things or we're making new friends, then later in a new job, like every stage of our life, we need that sleep just as much. But then we're fighting sort of other frontiers that are not, not related specifically to sleep. Mm. But if, if all is well and healthy, then it shouldn't start at the yeah. early stages. Yeah. And in terms of napping, since we just talked about it very quickly, a lot of people are very, you know, if it's the weekend, like, oh, I have a chance to nap. But really, is, is should napping be sort of, you know, a norm for some people? Like, it's a good thing to for them to nap because of the way our current society is. Like, is it normal for napping in adults as well? Should it be normal? I think that if you're able to nap, you're used to napping and it doesn't interfere with your ability to fall asleep at night, then absolutely it can be it would be a wonderful way to get the sleep that you need. But it can also have a negative side effect because if you're sleeping, let's say slightly too late in the day or very close to the time you would go to sleep at night, then suddenly what you would do is you would push delay that that nighttime sleep onset and then you would sort of again shift all of your schedule and uh, re uh, lose the alignment between your circadian and mm. your sleep we all have a dip in our internal clocks at around noon or one that perhaps originally came from our times in africa and being too hot to do anything else so we just didn't do much during the noon time until uh, the hot was more, the heat was more bearable. Right. But whether you sort of, so, you know, if you want to nap, it would be sort of easy in terms of the physiological state to fall asleep at that time. Mm. But the question is, what would you do to, you know, when come yeah, 10 or 11, when you're usually going to bed, right. do you suddenly feel more awake? Mm. And that means, that you have sort of interrupted your rhythm. So I think that people that know that they can nap and still fall asleep and, you know, it, it fits with their schedule, then by all means, there's nothing wrong with it. But, but if you see that it starts messing with your timing, then it's preferred to avoid it and keep your sleep only during the night. And if people had to nap for whatever reason, say they that day they had to wake up earlier than they should have. So obviously they've kind of missed out on something and they're starting to feel a little bit, you know, where like there's lagging in the middle of the day. Is there a perfect nap duration, do you think, that people can employ if they had to do that midday nap? Yeah, so studies talk about around 20 minutes being sort of optimal because you want to stay away from that deep sleep stage. Because remember that once you get in there and you wake up, you would have that brain fog and that sort of disorienting state. So 20 minutes would keep you within the light stages of sleep and then you would wake up. Mm. Because if you go longer than that and you go into deep sleep, then you would have to let the cycle complete the entire sort of 90 minutes or 100 minutes. Mm. And that's not always available for people. Yeah. So 
if you keep it at 20 minutes, at least you're not going into the deeper stages that would require time to wake up from or recover from. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's a that's a great tip because I think I'd like to, I I'm always on the thing of normalizing napping. One because obviously now looking in hindsight, I know this, but when I was working in hospitality, so I was working in a hotel, I was notoriously known to sometimes skip lunch and just nap on my cubicle floor because I didn't realize well I should have that I was typically a night owl, but because we had such a massive early start time in the morning. I was chronically sleep deprived. So therefore, I just did not have cognition until really 10 a.m. When it came to lunchtime, I would have rather, you know, caught up on some sleep so that I could get to the end of the day and actually get proper work done and productivity and just like skip the nap. And of course, I was drinking copious amounts of coffee, (laughs) lots and lots of coffee with chocolate. So double caffeine going in there and some sugar just (laughs) to get through the day. There was, I mean... It was three years and I was like, I'm, I'm so done with this because clearly this is not in sync with my natural rhythms. <laughs> but it was such a frowned upon thing that, oh, look at Shabra, she's napping on her floor. <laughs> and I'm like, but I'm so tired. And, and I think there are some people that just need to nap. They need to, it's better if they nap so that they can function for the rest of the day. And there's no problem yeah, with that. There's Obviously, no problem. And it, it should be the priority of the workplace as well. Yes. Because studies show that waking up from a nap, you know, if it's not too long, really promotes better mood. It promotes more better learning skills and memory. So yeah, should, they should have napping rooms, I think, in yes. every establishment. Every everything honestly it's you know no wonder some of the big tech companies like google apple all of them have nap pods you know it's it's so fundamentally important and it's really sad that the the old working mentality set is still like oh you're napping you must be lazy it's like i need you need you actually need the sleep to function and sleep is still seen some parts of though especially where i am that sleep is a lazy thing. It's sort of like if you can be on four hours of sleep and still manage a whole day, you are Superman. And and it's expected yeah. for women as well, that pregnant women or sort of postpartum women, when they've had the baby, they're supposed to somehow magically exist very, you know, confidently on very, very little sleep and still do it all throughout the day. And then People wonder why there's things like postpartum depression, anxiety, or rage. (laughs) And it's almost like a no-brainer. But again, I come from a biased view because I've studied a little bit about this. And this is my vocation. But in some of the research that you've come, I think just as a final, really last question before we are going to wrap up eventually is in the research that you have done, what are some of the very most interesting findings that you've come across? Because your niche, as you said, is also coming around, you know, how mood emotions are regulated and affected by sleep, positively or negatively. And what's the, some of the interesting things that you found in your research? So we touched a bit about it before, but we did a really interesting study on the effects of sleep loss and anxiety. And we had people stay awake the entire night and we measured their anxiety before and after sleep loss. And then we brought them in a second time and this time we let them sleep, again, measuring their anxiety. And we saw this really robust impact of sleep loss on anxiety. So people were up to 30% more anxious when they didn't get enough sleep relative to the night where they did get enough sleep. And we were interested in what changes in the brain are actually occurring that triggers such an anxiety. And typically when you look at the brain of people that are anxious, they either have an anxiety disorder or they're just highly anxious. 
what you see is that they have overactivity in regions that usually process emotions. Mm. So for instance, the amygdala is a region deep in the brain that processes emotions. And you see that their amygdala is much more active for stimuli like emotional pictures or emotional scenarios than people who are not anxious. So this is what you see uh, with anxiety, but you also see that other regions of the brain that are supposed to regulate emotions, specifically regions in the prefrontal cortex, so just behind the forehead, they typically regulate activity in the amygdala. So it's sort of like a brake stops accelerating the sort of emotional processing. So what you see in people who have anxiety is that on the one hand, they have more activity in the emotional centers. On the other hand, they have less activity in the regulation centers. Mm. So overall, what you get is a profile of someone who is easily agitated, which is what we think about when we think about anxiety. Yeah. And when we did our sleep deprivation experiments so in the morning, these are healthy individuals. They don't have anxiety. They're not really high on anxiety either. But in the morning after no sleep, we show them emotional scenarios and suddenly we see exactly the same profile. So brain regions that regulate emotions sort of go offline and regions that process emotions are much higher mm. relative to the same people after a night of sleep. Mm. So what we think is happening is that sleep and anxiety sort of target the same brain regions that are related to emotional processing and emotion regulation and actually give you the same phenotype of someone being easily stressed and being agitated. So you can sort of hack the system, so to speak, from either sleep loss or from anxiety, but brain-wise, you get the same image. You get an image of a brain that is not emotionally regulated. Mm. And the silver lining of this is that once we looked at their sleep, when they did get some sleep, and we were wondering what part of sleep is actually relevant for them to feel less anxious the next day. And what we found is that it was exactly the stage of deep sleep that we discussed and those really slow oscillating brain rhythms. The more you had of those, or the more time they spend in deep sleep, the more our participants reported feeling less anxious the next day. Mm. And the more that prefrontal sort of regulation region went back online. So suddenly it was more engaged. Yeah. So one of the things that we think is probably happening during deep sleep is that mechanisms that are relevant for emotion regulation sort of recalibrated, re-engaged, and were able to activate emotion regulation strategies again after we had a night of sleep, something we cannot do without sleep. Hmm. So sort of helps shed some light on why sleep and anxiety are so interlinked and really affect each other. You know, you probably had this feeling that if you're stressed about something, it's hard to fall asleep. And if you didn't have a good night of sleep, you feel more stressed the next day. So they really feed on each other and create this vicious cycle. And it all starts basically from that lack of regulation of the emotional centers in the brain. And and slow wave sleep helps restore them. So mm. I was really excited about, you know, venturing out and first of all, realizing what it is about sleep that helps reduce anxiety, but also why is it that when we don't get sleep, this is one of the first things that we see that anxiety and changes in mood. 
So then, oh, okay, okay. So then if, if someone is really, really anxious, right? So then because of sleep loss, they're getting higher amounts of anxiety, but then the anxiety is also now perpetuating that problem of falling asleep. And of course, that stress is now triggering adrenal glands to start shooting in adrenaline perhaps or some cortisol starting to shoot in there because of the stress of not being able to sleep and because they're anxious and they can't switch it off and they just can't shut down is that where because then most people then start resulting to going to medication you Mm -hmm. know taking sleeping pills taking melatonin taking antidepressants whatever and in i think in a short term is to to just get the body to shut down fine but then I also, what my understanding is that taking these things is not exactly the most helpful in the long run because isn't sleep medication doesn't necessarily promote deep sleep cycles, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Sleep medication doesn't keep that beautiful architecture of the cycles that we talked about. So it's not really promoting naturalistic sleep. And also in studies that they have tracked people with insomnia with sleep problems, a year later, some group had behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, and some people had medicine, drugs to help them sleep. One year later, it's the people that received the behavioral therapy that were actually doing better in terms of insomnia relative to the people that had the drug. Mm. So right now, the first line of treatment for sleep problems is actually behavioral cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which really emphasizes a lot of what we talked about in terms of sleep hygiene, not staying in bed for too long if you're awake in the middle of the night, really keeping sort of a schedule and a routine around sleep, trying to stick to the same sleep onset and sleep offset time, even though it's a weekend or a weekday. So really trying to rethink that clock with that sleep need that we talked about and having those in a constant routine obviously physical activity is going to impact your sleep quality somewhere and a lot of people are like oh i'm just going to work out right before i go to bed because i'll get tired and i'll i'll get fatigued and i'll go to bed and i'm just like surely that cannot be a great thing (laughs) like you you don't you don't want to be doing weight training and and aerobics just before but then that's the idea that oh i'm so tired so therefore i'll just fall asleep so well and i'm like the falling asleep maybe sure but i don't think the quality is probably maintained if you're gonna pump that much of adrenaline in your system just before sleeping yeah it's also the adrenaline that takes time to dissipate but it's also body temperature when we exercise we increase our body temperature we create more heat that we need for the muscles and actually in order to fall asleep we need to cool down by about one degree celsius and that happens every single night and that's why it's easier to fall asleep in a coolish room or cold room but it's harder to fall asleep in a room that's hot because a room that's hot doesn't last our body release excess heat in order to cool down. Mm. So if we exercise close to bed, we actually increase core body temperature and we make it harder for the body to cool down before sleep. So that's, that's why there's the advice of not exercising around three hours before bed, because it just doesn't help the body initiate a lot of processes of, of cooling the body down that we need. And also, like you mentioned, in terms of having stress-related hormones circulating too close to bed. Hmm. So I think in terms of sort of the benefit, really a benefit, but the fact that sleep and anxiety are so linked 
can really mean that you can also approach the problem from either direction. So if you feel more comfortable trying cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety, that would help your sleep as well. And if you're trying cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, that would help your anxiety as well. So you can play around and see what fits best. You can also try uh, meditation techniques and there are really great apps today to try and relax the body during the day and promote what we call parasympathetic activity, which is activity that typically dominates when we are calm and we are digesting, but we're not dealing with anything stressful. So this is the type of activity we would see during deep sleep, for instance. Mm. So you can try to initiate more of those states during the daytime by practicing breathing or different meditation routine. They have like 10 minute things or seven minute thing. If you do it daily, you can really help to reinstate a parasympathetic activity, sort of rest and digest activity. Mm. And one of the reasons that people wake up frequently when they're stressed is because they have a lot of that stress or sympathetic activity going on in the body, which does not allow for deep sleep to start. Mm. So whatever helps you get to that state where you know how to calm yourself down, you can do it more easily, then that would also help your sleep to stay, uh, to get deep faster into the deeper stages and also to be able to stay in the deeper stages. Just very quickly, those supplements actually help things like magnesium, calcium in terms of needing it for sleep, or should it just be only if you're having chronic sleep issues, that's when you're taking these kind of supplements? I was under the impression that calcium helps with melatonin production people often think that melatonin can help with with their sleep but Mm. often in young adults it's not the issue of not having enough melatonin it's more of the issue of having a very disrupted circadian rhythm because there is a lack of routine sometimes you go to sleep at 10 sometimes 11 sometimes so that you never really have a rhythm that starts climbing up at a certain time like your biological clock is sort of wired to do for based on your chronotype Mm. so melatonin supplements is only about trying to initiate sleep but once if you're able to fall asleep easily melatonin um, in young adults is not going to help much because once it goes up it just stays the same and taking melatonin supplements doesn't make it even higher. Yeah. So melatonin is mostly about trying to readjust the clock if you have jet lag. Or if you're an older adult, sometimes melatonin does drop. Mm. But melatonin is often really used to resynchronize the clock when we need to, when we have jet lag. But if you're in sort of the same time zone and it's easy for you to fall asleep, and typically, melatonin is not going to have much of an effect on staying asleep. Because adenosine is technically the sleep hormone that's actually washing. That's the sleepiness sort of pressure that's going through. The adenosine, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is that in studies, when you give healthy young adult melatonin, it doesn't add up to, there is sort of a saturation curve. So the body is probably very efficient at clearing the melatonin that it doesn't need. So if you're healthy and you're able to fall asleep in your typical time, taking melatonin would not make it, would not really change your timing, Mm -hmm. would not really change your levels of melatonin. It can help when you're older, but usually in in younger adults, we don't see an effect. 
Mm. Okay, so just to just to wrap up now. So as you said, same sleep onset and offset. So same time trying to go to bed, same time trying to wake up. Try to do your own sleep protocol study. Your own find your own Goldilocks window. I love that. I love the Goldilocks window. It should be. It should feel where you've gone to sleep and you've woken up and you actually feel refreshed and you're ready to go and you feel like a super per- person. You know, in that way. Obviously you know, limiting light exposure towards the end of the night, trying to not have too much bright light. So dimming, you know, low lights as you're going so that darkness is starting to trigger your melatonin to start secreting. Don't exercise like any time within three hours to bed, please. You know, we didn't really talk about this, but obviously caffeine, sugar is going to, I think everyone knows it's a stimulant to keep you awake, but definitely do not want to be consuming caffeine towards the second part of your day where it can start affecting your sleep i think we covered everything keep technology out of the bedroom yes keep technology out yeah. of the bedroom completely and i i think also from an electromagnetic you know point of view like you if you have a router in your bedroom for internet like you want to switch off that router so you just don't have those waves going through as much as possible but that's that's a whole other thing so then of course and then you know if you have things like anxiety depression you may want to address your sleep first you know talk to a sleep consultant like me who's trained in adult sleep or talk to a cognitive behavioral therapist get some therapy first and then consider medication after if you can this behavioral therapy could actually help but it will always come down to to sleep being addressed first because sleep essentially i think we don't know everything about it what it really does is reset everything as much as possible yeah. so that you have you know, when once it's reset, like your computer, when you've reset it and you shut down, you have, you know, everything's processed. And then for the next day, when you've turned it on, it's working exactly. perfectly fine. But if you never shut it down, you just put it on sleep mode, then at some point it's going to conk out, right? Yeah, I love this analogy. I always think about it too, when I think about sleep. Something gets fishy, something, suddenly things that are supposed to work don't work, everything slows down in your computer, you just reset it. Yeah. And then everything goes back to normal. So... It's our own reset button, sleep. And it does wonderful things for us the next day. So yeah, I love that analogy. Yeah. And I mean, we could just finally wrap up on, you know, Dr. Simon, what would you say is that your, I mean, you kind of touched upon it before, but what is the shift that you want to create with your work? I want people to understand how essential sleep is to our mental health as much as it is to our physical health. I want people to really acknowledge sleep for what it is. Our own reset button, as you said, are really a gift from biology to keep us functioning optimally, mentally and physically. And the million dollar sort of wish is to understand how sleep is doing all these miraculous things and how can really when you think about it, just eight hours out of the day to fix so many things, yeah, it's quite remarkable. I mean, there's so much activity that's going on in our body and our brain during the day and really sleep sort of tackles each one of them during the night. It's actually pretty amazing that it only needs a third yeah. of our life to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like only eight hours to process 16 hours of information, whether physical, mental, emotional, every single thought, every single exactly. chemical reaction. It's crazy how, exactly. how efficient our body's been built. Yes. So thank you so much, Dr. T. Ben Simon. So, so much for coming on today. I am really, really appreciative. And I think a lot of people are going to finally start 
waking up in a way to what the importance of sleep is and sleep better, hopefully, going forward. Amen. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yes, and hope we stay in touch and definitely look forward to more research that comes out from from your research work and everything. Thank you so much and good luck and take care and stay safe, especially now in the fires and everything.